you're starting to see, and you've seen for several years in Europe, in UK, in Australia, in Singapore, it's experienced less here. We, we have higher costs of banking, slower money transfers, more restrictions on money transfers, less applications that can, can provide a, a, a variety of things. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I'm glad you're back with us this week. Before we get on to this week's guest, who's Dr. Ryan Clements, if you have a chance, if you have five minutes, five minutes to spare, can you head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review as they really do help? And I appreciate it. It feels good when I see them. And it also helps bring great guests like Dr. Ryan Clements. Who is Dr. Ryan Clements? Well, he's the assistant professor, chair in business law and regulation at the University of Calgary. Dr. Clements is a pretty smart cookie. You'll hear that on this interview. During our conversation, you'll hear not only is he insightful, well-researched, and well-read, but he's incredibly passionate and really believes in what he studies and researches. He completed his doctorate at the Duke University Law School. And during that time, his dissertation focused on the post-crisis financial product innovation and exchange-traded funds, which is a fascinating topic in and itself. As we talk, you will hear Dr. Clements have some really good ideas on how fintech can help the unbanked and underbanked in Canada and beyond. He gives comparisons to other countries who are already implementing things such as open banking that really have reduced the barriers and complexities many people face when trying to access financial services. Dr. Clements has been doing some fascinating research in the field of regulatory barriers in banking, fintech, and financial inclusion. And as you'll hear, as I mentioned before, he's also a big proponent of open banking as he feels it will help reduce many barriers and complexities people face today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Ryan Clements. Ryan, I'm really happy to have you on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here as well. I came across your work actually by um, someone here in uh, Edmonton, uh, Jason Watt posted, I'm not sure if you know who he is, he posted an article and I was just fascinated by the work that you were doing. And not only was I fascinated by the work you were doing, but I feel like it's the work, so to speak, that's necessary as innovation comes, as we start to examine the disparities or gaps that wealth or money creates. And you cite a lot in one of your papers from ACORN Canada, which stands for the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. Something that really stood out to me, and I want to get your, your insight on this, because you, again, you include a lot of this in your papers, how many people, first of all, in Canada are underbanked and unbanked? And the number was fascinating. And I have the numbers here. I'm sure you remember. But let's start there. What is underbanked and unbanked? What does that mean? And how many Canadians are we looking at? 
Sure, happy to start there. So first of all, that is a, a statistic and a data point that tends to be fairly opaque and hard to know exactly because the data tends to be survey responses But we have a general sense based on not just ACORN study, but there's been several other studies as well. The Bank of Canada has done studies on this. Prosper Network has done studies on this. You have a small percentage of Canadian adult population that is purely unbanked, meaning they don't have a contractual or otherwise client relationship with a bank, period. The data tends to say close to or slightly lower than 1% of the Canadian population. But when you start thinking about what does that actually mean, it still means that there's a significant number of people who don't have a relationship with a bank. And I'll get into in a second what that exactly means. There's this other category of individuals where the literature describes them as underbanked. When we say underbanked, it means they don't access the full scope of financial services and products at a major bank or a provincial institution like the Treasury or Credit Union. They don't access the full scope of products that might otherwise be available to them. And this is where we get into this other industry, which is sometimes labeled with a somewhat negative term of fringe finance. And so that brings in a variety of of service providers, including pawn shops and consignment services and rent to own and payday lending and money orders and check cashing services. There's this space in between traditional institutions and banks and individuals who either aren't accessing banking services at all or accessing less than what they could. And so where my research comes in is we've all heard about, it's hard not to hear about fintech. Fintech has been, and I have written extensively in a lot of different areas about fintech. But when it comes to this unbanked segment, I'm interested as to whether or not new financial firms, financial technology firms that don't fit into this fringe financial sector, but also aren't within this legacy finance. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about mobile financial services, these neo banks, there's several Canadian companies, Mogo, Neo, Coho, real-time payments applications, stable coins, crypto, uh, digital remittance, uh, peer-to-peer lending, open banking and data portability, tech-enabled savings platforms like Mocha, things like that. What utility do they provide to this group over here? Is there a place where they can get better financial products and services at lower costs than what they're using when they're not banking through these financial technology firms? And if the answer to that is yes, which it appears to be, then the next question is, why isn't there a huge amount of take-up of that? There is a lot of take-up of fintech, but it, interestingly, it tends to be with the people who are at the banks already. That's where a lot of the interest in the fintech is, is lowering some of their costs and improving their services from the institutional banks. I'm interested in that, but I'm very interested in this other segment of society and whether it's possible that fintech can have an inclusionary benefit for them. And if so, what are the barriers and are there risks in opening up that portal to having people who 
aren't serviced by traditional finance now being provided with financial services through their phone almost exclusively. That's kind of the intersection of where there is. And when you when you dive into this, you see, okay, there's service providers, these consumer-facing fintech innovations with inclusionary potential. But there's a lot of things that stands in the way of really widespread adoption. And some of the things are the things that you actually talk about a lot in your podcast. It's not just regulatory barriers, which is a lot of the thing that I'm focusing on as a professor of law, looking at the current rules around providing financial services okay, and saying, well, what type of barriers to entry or barriers to competition exist and things like that. But when you really dive into the structural considerations of why are people even unbanked or underbanked, there's things like, in addition to the systemic issues of wealth, there's financial literacy, there's behavioral patterns, there's psychology, there's perception, there's feelings of being a greater accessibility when dealing with these fringe financial institutions of feelings of being more respected sometimes in terms of the survey data that comes out when they're dealing with these fringe financial institutions. So it's a complex question in terms of why are there people who don't use banks in Canada? Ryan, you are the guy to be studying this. I can just see your genuine concern. And I think it's such an important thing that we talk about. And for the listeners, I think we all get this feeling of when we hear, say it's like Acorn has around 5 million underbanked and less than a million unbanked. So we got 6 million people in Canada, give or take, which is not the highest percentage, but not the lowest percentage. But what I'm getting at is many listeners, they might not be underbanked or unbanked. However, I hope they continue listening. Because this goes into this greater idea that I really feel like you're doing such good work on is financial inclusion. And my question is here now about the listeners, fintech, big bank. I don't want to get into too many moral issues, but why should we care? Why should the listeners continue listening to this really, really insightful conversation on the impediments many, many people face that actually impact so many of their daily life decisions far beyond what hotel should I take three or four star hotels and how much of a privilege it is even to say that. And there's yet there's 6 million people in this day and age in Canada who are struggling from like even a cognitive scarcity mindset to, I can't feel comfortable going into a major bank. So I guess my question is more around is financial inclusion. Why should we all continue listening to this podcast and why should fintechs maybe take a stronger stance? Maybe they are. And we'll get into that on this idea of helping out the underbank and unbanked. So the first part that I would say is there's a clear benefit potentially to your listeners and to me and to you in having enhanced competition and lower costs of financial services and greater diversity of financial products. Assuming we can maintain the stability, there's this constant tension in Canada. I've written an op-ed on this in the Financial Post about our strength being our weakness and that we have a very, very stable banking system. We seem to have navigated multiple financial crises, including 2008, better than our counterparts south of the border. And so there's this reluctance and reticence to make structural changes to our financial system that would open up the pathway to greater competition, more products, more services, Greater competition, more products, more services leads to lower transaction costs, higher potential interest on savings, cheaper, faster ways of sending money. 
better investment opportunities. There's this whole host of benefits that these fintech firms can potentially provide, not just to the underbanked and unbanked, but to all of society. So the tension point is, well, how do you get that right? How do we maximize utility? Because there's been studies that show that average monthly banking fees in Canada are significantly higher than they are in the UK, even in the US for that matter. The interest on deposit accounts are significantly lower here than they are in other jurisdictions. So how do we maximize the benefit that these new technology provides, not just to underbanked and unbanked, but to everyone without undermining the stability of our system? So first point to your question is, well, there's a benefit to everyone, not just to those who are currently excluded from the financial system. Now, second point. When we get into this question, particularly about underbanked, it's a little bit more nuanced than people realize. A lot of people immediately think of people who are homeless or other people who who are just not using the banking system because of some extreme poverty type situation. That's not actually the case. When you look at underbanked in particular, so this more significant number that is cited around 5 million, It often involves small businesses and entrepreneurs, people who are trying to get credit or trying to raise money and have a very difficult time doing so through the traditional banking structure because either they have their new residence to Canada, they have thin credit files, they don't have collateral to be able to put up. And so then what do they do? Well, a lot of them don't go into business. A lot of them find something else. There's a positive ripple effect to all of Canadian society for having more entrepreneurship. I'm a strong believer in that idea. And so when capital is inaccessible, either people forego their entrepreneurial venture or idea, or they seek out the credit and capital from areas that potentially are higher cost of capital, potentially even predatory Again, when we look at these fintech innovations, you know, then there's a variety of ones that can enhance credit, not just the literal credit and lending platforms like peer-to-peer lending platforms or crowdfunding or other things like that, but even something which is heavily in the, in the news lately, and I'm happy to get into this, I, I do a lot of research on this, is, is open banking and data portability. So the ability for these fintech firms to be able to obtain data in a safe way without screen scraping, the data is housed at the major banks, can actually facilitate access to credit. It can supplement thin credit files with transaction data. It can allow certain fintech firms to be able to perform their own proprietary scoring mechanisms on transaction data and even facilitate and originate new credit. And so, again, when we go to your listeners and, and the listeners might think, okay, financial inclusion, well, I'm not excluded financially. Why do I care? Well, there are two main areas, again, just to summarize. Number one, the benefits to the excluded are available to you, too. Number two, the underbanked issue is, when you dig into it, it's a bit more nuanced, and a lot of it is in terms of entrepreneurial access to credit. And that's an area that I think in Canada, we could be a little bit more accommodating and perhaps a little bit more experimental with. 
I do believe that while stability is really important, it's a pendulum. And the more you move over to stability, the less that you facilitate competition. And what we're seeing with the open banking, in open banking, it's existed for several years in Europe. It's existed for several years in the UK, both the ability to read data and the ability to write data or initiate payments is what we call it. It exists in Australia. In Canada, we've been talking about it for three years, and that's all that we've done. Meanwhile, the only access to data is through these screen scraping applications, which opens up a whole bunch of both legal and cybersecurity risks. We're not sharing data in a safe way in this country. And by not having a systematized way to be able to access and share data, we're actually missing out on some of the consumer benefits that exist in other jurisdictions right now. So much there. Thank you, Ryan. I want to go into open banking, but first I want to clarify a few points. So credit scores. I want to go to credit scores. And in the paper, you, you refer to it as like a financial passport, which we know in the traditional sense, your credit score is everything when you want to access money, loans, and like to your point about entrepreneurs trying to start a business to get a loan. You use the term screen scraping. I want to get you to define screen scraping. And then also you were referring to like other transactional, this word you used, mechanisms that some fintech can use. Maybe you can make that simple. Is that like like a rent payment if they're always making the rent payment? And maybe you can give some tangible examples. Let's dig into that. So when you go to obtain a loan, there is a standardized process that your credit worthiness is scored. There's a metric that has been in place for a long time. And, and again, th- there might be a little bit of status quo bias in Canada. We had the executive director of Equifax on talking about credit scores. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's, it's an old system. <laughs> it's an old system. But, but again, we, we always have to think whenever we're talking about this area, about the tension between stability and competition. And the status quo bias could easily come in in this area and say, look, it's working pretty well. We've done pretty well. We didn't have what happened to the same extent as as the U.S. Now, having studied the 2008 crisis and written about it in, in significant detail, I would also argue that there's some other significant factors around that, too particularly in that we didn't have the originate to distribute and the securitization and the residential mortgage-backed securities and all the different credit derivative products that the, the factory of securitization food chain wasn't as prevalent here. But nevertheless, we have this system, okay? We have this Equifax, we have this system. The system works well for certain people. The system doesn't work well for other people. The, the people that the system doesn't work well is a much smaller portion of our society. But there's still people within the system, within our society, that that the incumbent credit scoring system doesn't work well for. That's particularly has a, it seems to have a disparate impact on new residents to this country. So new residents that might have had a a long history of financial prudence and success in a different country can come here and have difficulty obtaining small value loans. And so what fintech offers the potential for is the ability to access data and use that data as a transactional proxy in certain ways. So you can see the decisions that people are making in their day-to-day financial decisions. And these fintech firms will use a proprietary algorithm 
in their own way with the data that's available that may not be enough to get you alone in the incumbent system and say, we believe that this person is actually creditworthy based on how we are scoring with the transactional data. Now, screen scraping, access to data right now in Canada is done in a way that is quite risky, both cybersecurity and legally. It's called screen scraping. What that is, is there's certain data aggregator firms, okay? Mint, Yolt. You literally give them your banking login information. Unbeknownst to you, most people who aren't lawyers, who have done banking law, may not realize that you're actually violating your online banking agreement when you do that. There's fintechs out there right now that say, we can provide whether you know, some type of aggregation service or budgeting services or automated money management or other types of services. We just need to get into your bank account. So you sign over your online banking credentials, you violate your online banking agreement. Then the fintech goes in to your online banking and scrapes all the data. Well, there's many problems with that, not least of which is the fact that we have certain fintech firms that are sitting on like mass amounts of password information for online banking. So they become like major points of failure and major cybersecurity and data protection risks right there. There's a different way to share data. They are systematized, regulated ways to share data. And they've been put in place in the EU. This is the entire open banking debate. Whenever you see the term open banking in the Financial Post or anywhere, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a different way to be able to share data from the way that currently exists in Canada. And the different way is done by having, they're called APIs, application programming interfaces, basically software programs that banks that, that are regulated, they're standardized in terms of the rules and the, the standards that exist with them. Banks point data to those APIs and approved fintechs can access that. Now there's complexities with this, you know, from the nature of the consumer experience, ensuring that it's understood. There's always expressed consent. There's control over what gets shared and what doesn't. There's complexities on the standards themselves. There's complexities on the accreditation process of who can access those APIs. And this is where we are in Canada. Canada has gone through a series of consultations that have been spearheaded by the Department of Finance, and it's culminated just recently in an advisory committee to the federal government issuing a final report advocating for a regulated system of open banking data sharing that isn't screen scraping. But in that final report, it still leaves several questions unanswered in terms of what exactly is, is the accreditation process? Are we going to have a uniform API that everyone uses? Or are we going to have multiple APIs What's the role of provincial financial institutions? It's a bit opaque in terms of, of whether or not and how they're involved in this. We're moving towards open banking and safe data sharing. We're just moving very, very slow. And the consequence of moving very, very slow in this is that screen scraping perpetuates and the financial utility, including financial inclusion utility, that you're starting to see and you've seen for several years in Europe, in UK, in Australia, in Singapore, it's experienced less here. We have higher costs of banking, slower money transfers, 
more restrictions on money transfers, less applications that can provide a, a variety of things from new pathways to credit to aggregation services. Like, for example, when I say aggregation services, I mean like one app that you can just log into and it has everything across multiple banks and investment companies. We don't have anything like that. What if you had one app that you could go into and then you could move money between accounts even, between banks? That's what open banking provides. And that type of stuff, actually, it lends itself to significantly lower cost of banking. That's inclusionary potential. There are many people in society that $20 a month account charge is a significant issue. And that's what open banking gets us. The tension, again, is always around, well, how do we open that door without undermining what the world looks to us as almost like a beacon of banking stability? How do we open that door without undermining that other part? It's a complex question. I, I am encouraged, though, that the government, while well, at least the advisory committee, I'm encouraged with the steps and direction that they're taking. The challenge is, you know, we're in the middle of an election. Is the government going to prioritize it? Are they going to budget it? Like, what does this mean with the election? Are we now another year away from this? Are you and I going to have the same conversation next year? And the banks are starting to move right now to actually develop their own APIs in kind of a market-driven approach. And that's really what's happening in the U.S. around this, this issue. So with the open banking, it sounds like, like you said, from a data perspective, it's um, safer from a user experience, user-friendly. You can go bank to bank and lower cost. What have you seen in other countries that have adopted this in terms of, say, the underbank or unbanked, their adoption in terms of, is it difficult to understand? Is it complex? Maybe I don't have a smartphone. Yes. So, and, and I addressed this in, in the paper uh, that I shared with you, which was a, a study that was uh, commissioned on this particular subject uh, by the provincial government of British Columbia that I uh, wrote a fairly comprehensive study for. Sorry, I need to interrupt. Comprehensive? It was fascinating. 75 pages <laughs> of such detailed work. So. Well, thank you. We have to be careful not to just assume that if we provide a technology solution that it's going to be this panacea or this like one solution that eliminates poverty, because that's not true. The question of poverty and wealth and income inequality is a tremendously complex one that has a number of considerations across disciplines. What it appears to be is the more that fintech is available, we have to then look at these other questions, which is, A, is technology available? So if you look at some of the regions, I talk in the paper about M-Pesa in Kenya, for example, and this basically alternative closed payment system using credits within a cell phone, everyone had the cell phones. It seemed to work to be in a very effective system. Where there hasn't been a lot of studies actually in this country, it's one of the things I point toward in my paper in terms of needing more data is of these people who are unbanked in particular, underbanked, there's an assumption that technology is available, but is that clearly the case? That's hurdle number one. Okay, let's assume that we can get through that because we're moving to a societal I don't know very many many people who don't have cell phones. I don't know about you. Let's just move that one aside. And let's assume that people have not just a cell phone or a smartphone with an app, but they actually have a consistent, stable access to Wi-Fi or data. 
which isn't necessarily certain. Even if we jump over that hurdle, then we have to say the next question is, will they trust using this stuff? What are people used to using and how easy is it for them to transition into an app? And so what I advocate actually for that is, I call them learning and access zones, is that whenever we see things that, and I'm focused on the individual here, I also advocate for innovation hubs and regulatory sandboxes around the the companies and the technology, but around the individuals, there's trust, there's familiarity with, with the technological process, There is comfort in using it and having a positive consumer experience, which the fintech firms are thinking about all the time. And on top of that, there's even things like financial literacy campaigns. And I think that a lot of these things can be integrated together. Financial literacy with identifying financial technology applications that might have benefits to training on how to use them. Those type of resources are things that the government should look into, both provincial and federal, in terms of like how do we educate the population to understand even something with screen scraping. So when I let a firm go into my bank account and pull stuff, like what are the implications around that? So it's not enough to just have a clear regulatory pathway to having these new technologies. There's also the consumer side. They have to be educated. They have to be like, I've advocated for this for a while. Like, why aren't we teaching our kids this? I joke with my own kids. I have a kid starting uh, university this year. I've got a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. Why are you learning chemistry? You should be learning finance with all due respect to the chemists of the world. <laughs> you know, like, like why aren't those mandatory classes in high school? Like basic financial literacy should be a mandatory class in high school and maybe even introduce it in junior high, to be honest with you. Like that's the kind of stuff that we need. We need to look at that too. So kids are coming out and power. now obviously there's a group of adults that fit into the underbanked and unbanked need to benefit from these educational campaigns. But again, it's not just the existence of the technology. In order to really have inclusionary benefits, the technology has to be understood, trusted, and implemented with the individuals in society who aren't currently using the banks right now. And I'd say to that point too, and them having like, to your point about financial literacy, the ability to use the thing. So like their own knowledge, their own ability to enhance that. And you know, you make me, when you said something, it's just, it's just, it's sticking with me when we're talking about credit scores, but this applies to so much of what we're talking about is the systems I wrote down do not work for some people. And I think that's a really powerful statement. You know, we might want to be defensive at first, be like, oh no, the systems, you know, it works for me. And you know, it's a marginal percentage of people, but these are people. And just because, like oh, totally. to your point in the paper, the reasons that people experience financial exclusion are many times none of their own. And I was reading this other paper from the States and it talked about credit scores in the States. And it was showing that there is an astronomical, astronomical is not the right word, a larger portions of banking institutions, like, like retail banks, closing in 550 credit scores versus anything above 700 credit scores. They also put in, in the study that just I thought was interesting is that there's never been a, I don't know where they got their data on here, but there was never been a, a riot in a neighborhood that was a seven, I think it was 720 and above. I just bring that up because it goes back to this, I guess, this idea of the system is not set up. And it's very hard, I feel, when these barriers are 
presented and these systems are created for people to get out of them. And for people who aren't the excluded demographic, I think sometimes we just, we lack that empathy to understand how difficult it actually is. And there's that saying, pull up your bootstraps, which is it's just not, not a realistic saying. You and I are 100% on the same page on, on this one because the system's unfair. You don't choose where you're born into. You know, you, you're born in an unstable country. You come to this country and I'm really grateful to live in this country and to be in such an inclusionary country. But you come to this country and now you're subject to this banking system that you might be the most trustworthy person. See, and so there's some really interesting studies when you dig into this. And I cite some of these that people who are low income individuals, poor, there's not higher default rates on loans. There's plenty of evidence in micro lending that the default rates are extremely low, particularly in entrepreneurial type ventures in micro lending. So someone comes to the bank and they have a low income. They don't have the history to be able to generate a good credit score. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're less trustworthy or less credit worthy or less deserving of credit. It just means that their life experience doesn't equate to the algorithm that we're currently using. There's other studies that talk about income levels aren't the primary determinants of savings at all. The primary determinant of savings tends to be an institutionalized means of saving. So things like a mortgage or a automatic pension contribution, like those types of institutional means to save tend to be the determinants of savings, not income. Another thing that is a really big challenge is individuals who are underbanked or unbanked and also lower income individuals tend to hold fiat more. I mean, they hold cash when they're saving money and they might be very good at saving. I literally had this conversation with my daughter a week ago that if grandma puts away $1,000 in 1940, that $1,000 still sits in the jar, that can do a lot less. Let me teach you about inflation. Now, what if grandma put this into an index fund? Or what if grandma put this into some real estate? Now let's look at the view of this thing. And so this is where it gets tricky too, is that a lot of people are holding on to fiat in cash. And this is where fintech comes in directly. Like there's tons of stuff in fintech, really. These rounding up platforms, for example, where you can buy your coffee and put $2 into an ETF, a super low fee S&P 500, something like that, or, or these other types of mechanisms, robo-advisor and, and automated wealth management systems. Where, and this is the perception problem is some people perceive that world as inaccessible to them, but it's not. FinTech is making what might be perceived as inaccessible. So access to a wide variety of, of investment products that protect you against the problem with inflation when you're just holding cash a low-cost investment advice, low-fee investment products, like that is actually available to people right now. Okay? Like that's actually an area in Canada that we have. We have rounding up platforms. We have robo-advisors. We have low-cost automated algorithmic wealth management services where you can get high, high, high-end financial advice when you're investing dollars. That's available. But when our people tap 
tapping into that. That's the challenge. It seems to be the evidence in terms of a lot of these platforms are more millennials and more, you know, younger people or, or people who are looking, you know, comparing the big bank brokerage account with, you know, Wealth Simple or something and, and looking across the margins instead of this other question that you and I are talking about, which is generational wealth gaps. It's very, very difficult to move out from generation, from a poverty situation outside of it. But what you have to be able to at least start with is having money that can appreciate building assets, you know, not just holding on to cash. So these are all complex. And it comes down to what we were talking about, too, though, is are people aware of these? Are people, well, first, do people have the technology to access them? Are they aware of them? Are they comfortable with what they do? Are they financially literate enough to understand that putting money in a shoebox under the bed is a bad idea? And do they understand why that's a bad idea? Are all of these things understood by all of society? And I don't think the answer to that question is yes. I think that it's not well understood by people. Yeah, so much there. I see the time. And again, I want to be respectful of your time. So we've talked a lot about the underbanked and dunbanked and financial inclusion and what we can do and open banking system and the impediments that people actually have and uh, to no fault of many of their own. And I really like at the end there, you're really bringing in something that I I read and spend a lot of time researching is the, the, I guess, the behavioral side of why we make decisions. And we have such good technology that overrides those cognitive biases that are some people like Coleman says, impossible to actually over like remove. So why not create innovation that overrides it, like Roundup and automated savings? So we have these wonderful things. And I, I do agree with you. I love how you're really focused on the structure side, understanding the, like your words, again, the structure side, the system at risk and the utility of innovation. And then I think there is an element of psychology that we got to consider on. What are these people's stories? Who have distrust in the financial system? Can we expect them to adopt this right away? So my final question is, for your work, for you looking at this, we, we start with ideas, then we come up with products. And then sometimes the most difficult part is the implementation science. Yes. What is your message to, to people, to fintech, to what you see as the next steps to actually implementing some of this work? Yeah, so here's where we get granular. And here's where my work as a lawyer with a doctorate really, really comes in because you do need people. And I actually really enjoy this type of work. You know, you, you come up to 30,000, I tell my students, you come up to 30,000 feet so that we can understand what's going on here. But then we got to come down to, you know, zero to one inch in order to now say, okay, what are we actually talking about here? Let's use an example here. Let's say we're talking about a stable coin or some form of private money. And we look at this thing and we say, okay, it has a utility. Assuming it's actually stable, some of these algorithmic stable coins make me, you know, I've got the, I've got a piece coming on this on the fragility in these. But let's let's say something is. Well, you use the actually, I'll use a, an example that I literally teach my students. Let's use the first rollout of Facebook's Libra. Okay, that was like a transcendent super currency, like global super currency. Not only was it backed one for one, but it was kind of run like a money market mutual fund in lots of ways where they were holding the Libra 
association was was basically managing a super basket of multiple currencies, multiple government bonds, and ensuring that every one Libra is in the system is backed by, you know, something tied to the most stable sovereigns in the world. Well, what does that allow us to do? Well, it allows, let's say you're a new resident to this country, it allows you to send unlimited amounts of money. Instantly, you can move money from any part of the world into Canada instantly, and you have it here, and then you can instantly commerce with it. This is why when you, when you read the original Libra white paper, it's full of financial inclusion. And they were heavy on, look, right now, when you move money from here, country X, to here, country Y, it goes through two or three intermediaries. And each one of them takes a little bit. Why do we need that system? We can just completely disintermediate the system. But then that then spurred this conversation around, okay, well, what does that actually mean? Who's in charge of this thing? Who has the data? You know, is this too big to fail? Does this demonetize certain economies and impair the ability of central banks to enact monetary policy? What if every single person starts using Libra in, you know, their transaction? Like, what does that mean for the dollar? What does that mean for trade? What does that mean for Facebook? Facebook becomes a government at that point. So like, now this is a very big example. We can get into more granular details, but in all of this stuff, this is the hard work, which is, I find quite exciting work. And I encourage my students to jump into this too, is, well, let's try it still though. Like let's, let's dig into something and let's say, okay, there is utility here. How do we maximize this utility while at the same time identifying the risks and then containing the risks or at least making the risks transparent to those who are using this entire system? When you start thinking about it that way, you have to really identify each financial innovation in and of itself and identify how it's currently regulated, who it's going to be used by. Do the current regulations prevent its take up or utilization in a much wider way? If it is used in a much wider way, what are some of the risks and how do we have to start adjusting our frameworks around this? And, and you see this all over the place in fintech, right? Like crypto wasn't even regulated at all by the securities regulators in Canada until Quadriga happened. Quadriga happened. That spurred the you know, CSA consultation paper 21402 saying, oh, what's going on here? Which then led to staff notice 21327 and 329. And now you have to be re- you have to be registered with the, the securities authorities to run a crypto exchange in this country. But there's still an inherent challenge in all of this in that you look at then at the current regime and you think, is that too harsh? Is that chilling innovation? Is that pushing crypto out? Of, is that making Canada a non-crypto friendly jurisdiction? These are constantly questions that are live, which is part of the reason why I like this area so much is, is it's so intersected into public policy. And it's not something that you can just say, here's the rules yeah. to crypto. We're done with this. Because the moment you do that, DeFi shows up. It's like, okay, now this exists and that doesn't fit into this. There's a bit of a cat and mouse that you sometimes feel when you're in this area and as a regulator. But the overriding concern is, I think, ensuring maximization of utility while trying to ensure maximization of stability. That's the perfect place that you're always seeking for. Oh, right. I feel like I would 
pick your brain all day. I know you have a meeting coming up and I just, uh, you, you think so much like a researcher, which is so good is that, hey, we have this, but what's the, what's the other side to it? So we got to look at both sides to make sure that we're making innovation work for the most people possible. And thank you so much. I, I know you have a meeting coming up. I'm going to include your website. There's links to your papers. I'll put the link for the one that we've been talking about because it, it, it is a great read. And I, I want to say thank you so much for the work you're doing. You can tell that you really, really genuinely care about this. And uh, I do. I, I'm looking forward to following you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, so Ryan J. Clements. I put all my papers, just ryanclements.com. You can find it there. And uh, I'm also on the University of Calgary, obviously faculty website. So thanks for having me and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Ryan Clements as much as I did. During our conversation and after the conversation, my mind just kept racing on different ways that perhaps we can solve these barriers and complexities that so many people face in our financial system currently today. Well, until next time, have yourself a fantastic week.